lays eggs. And yeah, it's a marsupial. Uh, carries this baby in a, in a pouch. Uh, and the babies, when they're born, are about the big as your end, end of your thumb. But Robin Williams was on uh, one of the late night shows, and he said that the way God created the duckbill platypus was whatever. <laughs> Get such a kick out of out of him. Well, I'd like to go over to uh, Matthew chapter eighteen or seventeen. I mean, Matthew sixteen is where Peter confesses Christ. Remember that. Matthew says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark says, you are the Christ of God. And Luke says, you are the Christ. Um, in the Gospels, the word should never be translated Christ. Because Jesus and the people of the Gospels are never talking to Gentiles. The word Christ and Christian is a Greek word, a Gentile word. Uh, the Gospels, the word should be Messiah. All the way through the first eight chapters of Acts, it should be Messiah. It should actually be translated the way the, the Hebrews would hear it. Because the word Christ to them, this is, they hate that. And when somebody says Jesus Christ in the, in the Hebrew culture, uh, to this day, a friend of mine from New York, a New York Jew, said the only time he heard the name Jesus Christ was in cussing. Um, they would call him Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, if they were believers. Well, this, this Jewish friend of mine did become a believer. He heard the gospel the first time and believed it and was baptized. Uh, it happened to many people. Ben Alexander, who is a Jew, I don't know if you know who Ben Alexander is, but you can look him up online. He was a spiritualist, a medium. He had a couple of spirits with him. He was followed by demons, and the demons would teach him and tell him things. <clears throat> he met the demons when he was five years old, and he met only one, and then several years later, that one brought another one. Sounds kind of like Jesus' story, doesn't it? And uh, he listened to the demons up until he was uh, a grown man, and he told fortunes and did all kinds of things that the demons would reveal to him. And then one day he saw a sign for a revival in an Assembly of God church. And uh, he went in, and he was started into the church, and the demons said, where are you going? He said, We're go I'm going in here. And they said, you don't want to go in there. And he said, yes, I do. I, I want to hear this. And they said, well, we can't go in there. We can't follow you. Uh, so please don't go in. But he went in anyway. And uh, he heard the gospel and believed it also. And then Ben Alexander wrote a book entitled Out of Darkness, in which he, ex he tells his story of how, to, how he got rid of his demons. When he was baptized, he never saw them again. 
there's a line of demarcation for the Christian. And that line of demarcation is baptism. Uh, about the time you were there, Harold, you may remember this, it was quite a ways back, uh, at, Link, at uh, Dallas, we had uh, a Satanist come up on campus. Was, was that when you were there? And, I mean, he looked like a Satanist. He had eye makeup that made him look like Satan. He wore a cape. Uh, he came up into the men's dorm and asked about one of our students. And the student was at work. And he said, uh, you know, he was one of mine. He's, he was in my group. Uh, has he been baptized? And they said, yes, he has. And the guy just turned on his heel and left. And somebody had come over to get me in the, uh, across the parking lot, and I was coming across the parking lot when this guy came out of the men's dorm. And he turned and looked at me and took off running down the road straight in front of the men's dorm, just his cape out flying behind him. Um, the line of demarcation that separates us from evil and from the world is baptism. Uh, one of, there are three Old Testament illustrations of baptism. Uh, the first Old Testament illustration of baptism is 1 Peter 3, where he talks about the days when the ark was preparing. And then he says, in the ark, eight people were saved through water, and that signifies baptism, which is now saving you. So, so the line of demarcation for Noah was baptism, that is, going through the flood in the ark, he wasn't literally saved by the water, but the enemy was destroyed in the water. All the evil of the world was destroyed except the evil that was in those eight people that were on the ark. You see what I mean? There's an illustration there. And that's a good illustration. First Peter goes on to say, baptism saves you not by the washing of the body, not, not taking away the filth of the flesh, but by the answer of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in other words, real baptism takes place both outwardly and inwardly. You're washed with water, but you're also, uh, your, your heart is changed. The scriptures call it several places, circumcision of the heart. Uh, Colossians uses that image, and that's another Old Testament image of baptism, circumcision. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says, that when you were baptized, you were circumcised by the circumcision made without hands. In other words, the Holy Spirit did it. Uh, the end of Romans 2, Paul says, circumcision is of the heart done by the Spirit, not by the written code. In other words, there's an outward circumcision and there's an inward circumcision. And if your hearts are not circumcised, then you haven't really been circumcised. There's an outward baptism and an inward baptism. If your heart has not been baptized, then you're, you're not really baptized. Uh, and then the third illustration is 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, brothers. Interesting how many times he calls the Corinthians ignorant. <laughs> he said, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. Uh, all our fathers, all our fathers were under the cloud. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same supernatural food. And all drank the same supernatural drink. Because they drank from that 
spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, he says. Remember when Moses struck the rock and the water came out? They drank from that, and that rock was Christ. So the water is a symbol of the Spirit. But baptism there, he says, is what happened in the Red Sea. When the Jews passed through, they were under the cloud and through the sea. Under the cloud indicates protection and guidance from God. Passing through the sea indicates deliverance from your enemy. And you remember what happened to Pharaoh's army when it tried to follow. The the sun came up, Scripture says, the chariot wheels began to clog. Uh, It's a very interesting story there in Exodus 14 and 15. And when they sing about it, uh, when they sing about the Exodus, sing about passing through the sea, they say the chariot wheels of the Pharaoh began to clog and the sun came up and then the waters collapsed. Early in that chapter, it says the water stood up and coagulated. And that probably means it froze. And the people ran through on dry land. And then whenever Pharaoh gets in there and the sun comes up here, you know, the water crashed together and destroyed the enemy. So the enemy's power is broken in baptism. Wow. Wow. Are you a pusher or something? <laughs> gave me a big bottle of vitamin C here for my immune system. Thank you. I just I forgot to bring. I usually take uh, two grams in the morning. Now I take a little bit with my multi, but thank you. I'll give you the rest of them back. <clears throat> There's too much in there for you know. Well. Chapter 17 is the story of the transfiguration, and this is the second time God speaks in the Gospels. After six days, and by the way, I'm going to try to go a half hour and then quit, and we'll take another break. Uh, I went over an hour the first time. It's much better for all of us if we take a half hour and then take a break the next couple of times. And uh, this afternoon after we eat, We'll go through just a little bit of one of the Gospels at the end. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took with him the inner circle. These are the same three that he takes with him into the garden to pray. Remember that? The other nine disciples, eight disciples now, because Judas is gone. But the other eight disciples remain behind at the edge of the garden. And then these guys go in with Jesus. And then Jesus goes in a little farther. He asks them to pray with him. He was sorrowful to death, he said. Uh, The other time that he took Peter, James, and John. So six days. This is six days after Peter Peter gives the good confession. Now, it's very interesting because in Luke's gospel, if you look at the transfiguration in Luke's gospel, Luke says after about eight days. But Mark and Matthew both say after six days. Why would Luke say after about eight? Well, six is about eight, isn't it? (laughs) See, he wasn't there. So he just does interviews with the people, and some of them may not remember how many days it was, and so he says about eight. That's the type of thing that happens throughout the Gospels. 
Uh, it's called, let me write this up here. It's called the synoptic problem. The differences and the similarities in the Gospels. The three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics or the synoptic Gospels. If you've read an introduction to the Gospels, uh, even in an NIV study Bible, uh, you know that, that this problem exists. They don't know why. For example, Matthew has two every time. Matthew, uh, when Mark and Luke say Jesus healed a blind man, Mark even gives the blind man his name. His name is Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, uh, that Jesus healed in Jericho. Over in uh, Matthew, he says there are two blind men. Um, Mark and Luke apparently remember one whose name, and Mark knew that his name was Bartimaeus, or Peter did. Probably knew him because he, were, he was a Christian. Um, when, when Jesus rides the colt, the foal of a donkey, uh, on, um, on triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Matthew has two donkeys. He has the mother, which is led along the road, and then the young one that follows. And so it makes sense, but the, the other two Gospels focus only on the young donkey. Uh, when uh, Jesus was in the, the area called Gadara, near the Sea of Galilee, on the other side from where the Jews lived, on the west side, uh, he came to a country called Gadara, and this guy comes leaping out of the tombs on all fours like an animal with chains dangling from his wrists. Uh, he was the demoniac, you remember, that, that had been bound with chains but actually broke the chains. And he sat up in the tombs and howled all night long and cut himself with, uh, with uh, broken pieces of uh, rock. It was a horrible thing. And this thing drives him to come to Jesus. Now, this is the one that had legion, remember? Jesus said, what's your name? He said, legion, for we are many. Um, according to Mark and Luke, there was a gathering demoniac. According to Matthew, there were two gathering demoniacs that came out to meet Jesus. And the demon inside the man shouted, I know you, who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? Have you come to drive us out before the time? To judge us before the time? Please don't throw us out into the abyss. What's that mean? Into the deep where they can't find somebody to live in. And they begged Jesus, throw us into that herd of pigs. Remember this story? So those pigs... As soon as the demons go in, the pigs run down the hill into the Sea of Galilee and drown. Uh, somebody said that was the first suicide. Uh, one of my students. <clears throat> but I said, actually, it's the first case of deviled ham that's ever been, ever been seen. But see, Mark and Luke say there was one, and Matthew says there was two. 
There are all kinds of things like this. Uh, one of the Gospels says that when Jesus was going into Galilee, or going into Jericho, he healed the blind man. Another one says he was in Jericho, and another one says he was leaving Jericho when he healed the blind man. You know, maybe there were two blind men. Maybe Matthew has it right. One of them going in, one of them coming out. Uh, maybe he went to the edge of Jericho and turned around and went back out, and that was where he healed the guy. We're just simply not, it's just, there are these problems that you can't solve by looking at the text. It's not contradictions. It's just that the story is not complete. We don't know all the details. The Bible usually gives us a snapshot. It doesn't give us a panorama. We don't see every detail. Occasionally we'll catch all the details in one story. But let's go ahead and look here at the transfiguration. Oh, yeah. Yes, when people witness an accident or when they witness an event, you know, if you talk to the people who went through those horrible tornadoes, you'll get all kinds of different points of view and different stories of what happened. And I think that's similar to this. But I've always wondered, how does the Spirit of God use this? My view is these, these books are close enough together that they obviously agree on Jesus. But they're different enough that they obviously didn't copy off each other. If they had copied, see, I would think collusion had happened if they were all the same. But the fact that they have differing details and differing interpretations, and all of them omit what some of the other Gospels have, and every Gospel has something unique that the others don't have. So they di obviously did not copy off each other. You know, the scholars study this, and they say, well, Mark wrote first, and Matthew copied off him. There's no evidence for that. Uh, Mark is Peter's gospel up in Rome. Matthew was, was Matthew's work in Jerusalem. And Luke traveled all over the world with Paul. And, you know, his was a series of interviews. So the gospels are all different and all based on different sources. But basically, the center of it all is Jesus. If you were to write a, a biography of your best friend, and then if he wrote his autobiography, you'll get two different points of view. And I think we have here four different points of view. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led him up into a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter opens his mouth, as usual, when he should have been listening. And by the way, what were they talking about? What were Peter, I mean, Jesus and Moses and Elijah discussing? Not at this point. Uh, not at this point. They're talking about one thing, and only Luke tells us what it is. They're talking about Jesus' exodus is the word. In other words, his death. They're discussing his death. Now, this is right after Jesus told them he was going to die. Look at, 
Look at verse 21, back over in, in chapter 16. From that time on, Jesus began, this is right after Peter said, you are the, the Christ. The Jewish view of the Messiah is that he will be an earthly king. So they're all thinking earthly king. And to correct that, Jesus immediately says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised again. Now, Peter understood this time because it says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This will never happen to you. Jesus said, get out of here, Peter. I mean, get out of here, Satan, he literally says. You're a stumbling block to me. You have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone who'd come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to lose his life will save it. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. What good is it man, for a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his life, his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul or his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now we can discuss that verse, but I want to go back and look at verse 27. He will reward each person according to what he has done. Did you notice that phrase? He'll reward each person according to deeds. 22 times. When the Bible speaks of the judgment at the end of the world, the people are told you'll be rewarded according to your works. So judgment is based on our works. You go to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is a parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember that parable? And to the sheep, Jesus said, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was in jail. You visited me. I was in the hospital, and you came to see me. And the righteous say, when did we, when did we do those things? When did we do that? Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of my brothers, you've done it to me. And he judges them on the basis of what they did. Then he sends them to heaven. But to those on his left, he'll say, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, you, you didn't give me something to drink. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was in the hospital, you didn't visit me. And he said, when did we do those things? And Jesus said, when you didn't do it to the least of my brothers, you didn't do it to me. And they're judged on the basis of their lack of works. And they're sent, they're sent to hell, they're sent to punishment while the others are sent to eternal life. And I think that's very interesting. But is he talking about, is he talking about losing your salvation? No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about we're judged on our works. Yeah, I always, I always always thought that that particular judgment meant eternal. Yeah, I believe it is our reward that we're yeah. given. Yeah. But, but the unbelievers who didn't do the work. The unbelievers. Right. Those are the ones who are rejected. Yeah. 
No, no, that's not what he's saying. If, if you're a believer, you do work. Uh, if you're a believer, you, you walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Paul says, we walk in the work of God, the works of God, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, because we're believers, we help people. That's the biblical definition of love. 1 John chapter 2 gives us that definition. He says, if you see your brother in need and close up your heart against him, how have you loved him? Love is taking care of people's needs. The danger here is for us to think that we're saved by these works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. But 22 times the Bible says we're judged by our works. In other words, our reward will be based on what we've done. The book of Revelation says we'll be given a white robe. And Revelation 19 says the white robe is the good works of the, of the saints. Okay, so here they're talking about Jesus' exodus. They're talking about his death. Why Moses and Elijah? And when they fade away and Jesus alone is left, isn't it interesting that the disciples who were there recognized those two men immediately? See, this tells me that in the next world, we'll know each other. And we'll know each other uniquely in ways probably we can't know each other here. And also, you know, if you look at Jesus after his resurrection, there were times when they didn't know him, when his identity was withheld from them. Like with Mary Magdalene, she thought he was a gardener. With the two guys on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know who he was, but they were amazed at his teaching. And then they recognized him, and he disappeared, and they run back to Jerusalem, and they say to each other as they're heading back, this is at night now, weren't our hearts burning within us when he opened up to us the law, the prophets, and the writings? Moses and Elijah signify the law and the prophets. So when you go over to Revelation and you see the two witnesses that bear witness to Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapters 11 uh, through, let's see, chapters 9 through 11, 8 through 11, sorry. Uh, in chapter 8, in chapter 11, you have the three witnesses, and it says that they are uh, able to stop the rain. And they're able to call down fire from heaven. Well, only Elijah could do that in the Old Testament. It also says that they're able to uh, uh, do work, work with water. Uh, that they are able to strike the earth with plagues as many times as they want. Well, obviously Moses. And so you got Moses and Elijah, and they signify the law and the prophets, which is like saying the whole Old Testament so the Old Testament fades away, and Jesus is there by himself. And Peter always has to open his mouth. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He wanted to stay there with them. He wanted to stay on the mountaintop. While I was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud. See, what is the cloud? There's two images of the cloud in Scripture. One is a cloud is judgment. Jesus comes riding on the clouds. The Father 
came riding on the clouds back in Isaiah 19 and 20 and struck the river Nile into seven streams, meaning he came, God came back and, and destroyed Egypt. And then the cloud here is to keep us from seeing God. If you go to Isaiah 6, you remember the one seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and uh, the seraphs flying around him crying, Holy, holy, holy. A seraph is a great winged dragon. These things have three sets of wings. With two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. They cover their feet because they feel unclean in front of absolute holiness that sits on the throne. And he sees this being on the throne. John twelve forty one says it's Jesus that he sees. He's seen Jesus 700 years B.C. Obviously, B.C. is a misnomer. There's no such thing as before Christ. He always has been, always will be. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So he sees him on the throne, and when these things shout, smoke and fire come out of their mouths, and the house fills up with smoke, it says. So now they can't see him anymore. Isaiah can't see God anymore. And that's what the, the cloud is for. It obfuscates God. It keeps people from seeing him. Paul says, God is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. He is light, dwelling, inapproachable, that no man has seen or can see. So here he is in the cloud, keeping them from seeing him, but here's the voice coming out of this bright cloud. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Same phrase, see, the beloved. Same phrase at his baptism. Listen to him is added. In other words, Peter, stop talking and listen. And it's interesting that Peter remembers this. Turn over to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Don't you think a, a transfiguration like this? Imagine if, if we were all here and all of a sudden... Don stood up and started to glow, and his clothing went white, and his face was like the sun. Can you imagine what our response would be? See, that's, that's what it's going to be like in the next world. We will be like that. We'll be glorious beings. And when Peter saw this with Jesus and Moses and Elijah, he never forgot. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice. Notice what he left out. He left out, Listen to him. Be quiet, Peter. We ourselves heard the voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So this, this impressed Peter in a way that he never forgot. And Jesus told them on the way down from the, the mountaintop, 
don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead. So Peter, James, and John kept this to themselves. Second Peter one sixteen. And then go over to Mark chapter nine. The transfiguration starts in verse two of Mark chapter 9. And it reads almost the same. In, in verse 5, Peter calls Jesus rabbi. It is good to be here. Let's put up three shelters for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. When you'd see something like this happen, it would terrify you. He should have been quiet, but he spoke up. But he didn't know what to say because he was so afraid. Now see, only Peter would know that, that he was afraid. And so only Mark tells the story because Mark got his gospel from Peter. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. A voice came from the cloud, this is my son and my love. Listen to him. <clears throat> Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. They were coming down the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone and so on. Then, verse 14, here's one of the miracles Jesus does. Mark 9 gives us more detail on this miracle than Matthew does. That's why I skipped there. When they came to the other disciples, now how many other disciples? How many other disciples did they come down to the mountain and run into? Eight, nine of them. So there were 12 disciples. Three were with Jesus. So when they come down, they run into nine of them. The other disciples, <clears throat> when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Why would they be overwhelmed with wonder? Some of the commentaries say that his face was still glowing. Certainly, they'd been talking about Jesus. The other nine who couldn't cast this demon out were saying, well, if our master was here, if Jesus were here, he could do this. What are you arguing with them about, Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by an evil spirit who robs him of speech. <clears throat> Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation. Again and again, Jesus is just so frustrated with people because they don't have enough faith. They just don't believe, including his disciples. And I'm sure including us. We worry about stuff we should never worry about. We worry about the future. We should never worry about the future. God's in charge. He's the God of the future. Oh, unbelieving generation. Other places he calls them little faiths. Going too long again. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
You see how frustrated he is in that little paragraph? How long do I have to put up with this? What's wrong with you people? How long? Bring the boy to me. If you don't have the faith to cast this demon out, I do. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the water or the fire to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If. If you can, Jesus said. Everything is possible for him who believes. This guy was sharp. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, here came all the people. He rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked. You ever hear a shriek? Man, when I'm in class, I ask the students, you know what a shriek is? And they usually say no, and so I shriek. <laughs> and they, ah, you know, I won't do that to you here. I'd probably destroy the tape. But the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And Jesus had gone indoors. His disciples asked him privately, why, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. You better be prayed up when you come into contact with a demon. I think I've been involved in three demon experiences. Two of them I know were demon experiences. I'll tell you one of them. <clears throat> there are not many demons around uh, inside people uh, where the gospel is preached. But when people avoid hearing the gospel or don't hear the gospel, demons can operate. And it's kind of like the old myth about the vampire. He can't come in your house if you don't invite him. The demon can't come in if you don't invite him in. In 1972, I read William Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist. He had read everything ever written in French, German, and English about demon possession. And it's an authentic story about authentic priests who came and tried to cast out a demon. Now, unless you're prayed up, prayed and fasted and ready to work, ready to trust Jesus to do this, it's very difficult to cast out a demon. I was in camp with Ron Key, Craig Wolsey, who's a missionary from Chile, and he had seen demon possession before. Uh, a bunch of us leaders were in, a, in a, one of the camp buildings, and there was a girl who would go to chapel. Her parents told us later that she had been kicked out of reform school. She was so out of control that nobody could handle her. And her parents sent her to this church camp uh, as a final hope. Her parents were not believers. Bill and Darlene Combs are their names. I'm still in touch with them with email. 
their daughter Rhonda is the girl. And when she would go to chapel and somebody would mention the name Jesus up front, she'd go, ah, and go out. And uh, later, some of the students, the, the uh, football people, football players, went out and found her howling with coyotes out the camp. And they took her, and uh, Craig Wolsey said, grab her and bring her into the cabin. So these four football players huddled her, you know, got a hold of her. She probably weighed 90 pounds, and took her into that cabin. And they had one on each arm and one on each leg, and she's lying on the floor, and she's throwing them around like rag dolls, big, heavy guys. And uh, Ron Key came in then and started commanding the demon to come out. And he went through it again and again and again. And the demon just kept rejecting and throwing him around. And uh, I was praying. Craig Wolsey was praying. Several others, uh, several other of the leaders in the camp were praying. And all of a sudden, he says it one more time. And this probably went on for, for at least half hour. It may have been longer than that. It seemed to me it went on for hours. Demons are recalcitrant. They will not obey. But they have to obey the name of Jesus. And after he kept saying it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, come out again and again, the place was bathed with sweat. These guys trying to hold her down. And all of a sudden her eyes rolled back in her head. And she passed out. And the guys rolled off and just... <laughs> You know, just exhausted there on the floor. And when she came to, it was probably a minute or two, they started washing her with a, a cold washcloth. When she came to, when she looked at you before, it was like a demon looking at you. But when she came to, she was beautiful. She was transformed. And when she, she was baptized later that day. And uh, when she went home, both her parents were so shocked at the change. Uh, her dad was an exterminator. Uh, and they both became Christians as a result. And they both came to Dallas Christian. Uh, Bill Combs graduated from there. And uh, his wife worked in the office, Darlene. And Bill and Darlene went up into Missouri and had a ministry uh, up in Missouri. And Paula and I stopped there and had lunch with them one day. Uh, there's some place in South Texas now, but I still get an email occasionally from, from Darlene. Uh, their lives were transformed by that experience. And mine, too, is the first time I ever saw something like that. Later, I saw something else like that in, in West Texas. I won't go into that one. But I think what happens when, when Christ is not preached or dealt with in a family and somebody in that family opens up and invites in a demon. This is what happened in the exorcist. The girl was playing with, a, uh, with some of her friends with a Ouija board. And uh, Ben Alexander says a Ouija board is a doorway between the worlds. And they played with this until the, the demon began to respond. And when all the other girls had left, she kept playing. And then she invited, you know, the demons would answer her questions. And she invited the demon in. And that's how she became demon-possessed. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing story. I had nightmares about that book. Uh, I had dreams about it. 
I dreamed, one of my dreams was that people were singing instead of praise the Lord, praise the Lord. They were singing, hate the Lord, hate the Lord. And there were demons being worshipped. And uh, it, was a sh- it was scary, scary dreams. Uh, trying to read that book and understand all, this, all that was going on. Well, demons have tremendous power if people surrender to them. And it does happen, even in our culture. Uh, John Morris, who's a friend of mine who was in Tibet for many years as a missionary, said every little town, every village he would go into, there would be at least one demon-possessed person, and usually it was the witch doctor, the shaman. And he would have to cast the demon out of that guy before he could preach the gospel in that town because otherwise the guy would fight everything he did. Uh, He's seen many demon possessions. He he told me probably over a hundred. But in our country where the gospel is fairly well preached, you don't hear things like that very often. But here's Jesus, able to cast this demon out because of prayer. (coughs) Because of prayer. Let's pray and take a break. We thank you, Father, that Jesus came, that he lived among us, even though I know he was sometimes embarrassed or frustrated by our behavior. I thank you, Father, that the disciples stuck with him, the eleven, that they followed him and saw all the miracles he did, and even though they were fearful after his crucifixion, afraid that they too would be crucified or mistreated by the crowd that Jesus overcame their fears thank you that when the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost that they were willing to speak boldly the word and even though they were murdered for their faith all of them except John we thank you that they were honest and open with the word. And I pray you'll help us to be that way too. Thank you that Jesus in our lives has power over everything. It's in his name we pray. Amen.